Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and today on the podcast... We've got a couple different things to talk about. Some of it, Georgia-specific, which is what we do. Some of it, not so much. Some of it more big-picture college football stuff. And I'm actually going to start with the not-so-much content first because, well, it, it dominated the conversation, not just in college football, but really the entire world of American sports last week. And that, of course, as you all know, is the Nick Saban versus Jimbo Fisher feud that took the sporting world by absolute storm last week. And I think it's fair right now. I think with last week's events, I think it's fair to call it a feud. I think it's fair to call it that now. It might have just been bad blood once upon a time or maybe just resentment, a rivalry maybe. But I think after last week, it has 100% escalated into outright feud status at this point, which if you love college football, you kind of have to love that. I mean, as a fan of college football, I wish they could just tee it up tomorrow, like strap it up, get out there on the field in Tuscaloosa, play this game tomorrow. But think about what the lead up to that game is going to be like in early October. It's going to be absolutely insane. So again, as a general fan of college football who loves this stuff, like a lot of you guys out there, I was eating this stuff up last week. I mean, insert obligatory Kirby Smart eating popcorn gift. That was me last week, guys. But with with this being an unapologetically Georgia Bulldog-centric podcast, as much as I was eating this stuff up last week, it's not something that we are usually in the habit of dedicating any time to on this podcast, let alone leading an episode with it. You know, customarily, you guys listen to the show, customarily, We are very content to just sit here and reside in our own little red and black bubble, but I would kind of equate it to what I said about Georgia basketball coverage on the basketball episode that I did a couple weeks ago, and for those of you who missed that, who missed what I said because you just skipped the episode, which is exactly my point, it's not that we don't want to talk more Georgia basketball on here. It's that we don't think you want us to talk more Georgia basketball because that's what the numbers tell us. And that's what they told us yet again on the basketball episode that I spent a lot of time actually putting together a couple weeks back. The demand just isn't there. And like any good business, 
We can't really dedicate resources to things people don't really care about, and we try to give you what you want. We try to fill the demand. And in the red and black world of the Bulldog Nation, the demand is heavily skewed towards college football, Georgia football. Therefore, our content is heavily skewed towards Georgia football, and that has been a very successful formula for us. But again, it's not that I don't want to talk about other sports on this podcast or branch out and talk more general college football. In fact, to let you peek behind the curtain here for a minute, I have been strongly considering launching a new, more general college sports podcast because I think there's a market for our brand of no frills, hardcore sports talk out there on maybe a broader college sports scale. And that wouldn't be to replace this podcast. We always do this podcast because University of Georgia is my pride and joy in the world. It's my passion. That's my number one passion. But it would be kind of an addition to. I just love college sports and I want to cover more than just Georgia football. Again, obviously, I am a Georgia guy through and through. That's who I am. That is my identity. And I embrace that. But I'm also passionate about the broader world of college sports too. But the way I've always approached this podcast is that it isn't about me. It's not about Curtis. It's not about Charlie. It's not about us. It's about you guys. It's about what you want us to cover and the type of content that you want, which is why we do so many mailbag episodes and we've had listeners on the podcast in the past and just generally try our best to make this podcast as interactive and fan-friendly as possible. I know we fall short with that at times, but we, we get our best shot, guys. We do. We try hard at that. But... Every now and then, what I want to cover and do on the podcast, maybe beyond the confines of Georgia football, every now and then, it does align with what you guys also want us to cover. And I think this is one of those cases. I was, like usual, already just ignore the Saban Jimbo brouhaha. That's what I'm going to call it. It's a brouhaha. At least on this show, I was just going to ignore it because I didn't think you guys cared what we had to say about it. I thought you would want us to just stick to Georgia sports. And uh, leave it at that and just kind of leave it for the national guys to pontificate on this whole deal. But a lot of you reached out and have been asking for our thoughts on the whole thing. And we're asking when and if we were going to share those thoughts on the show. And with that in mind, and it also just being a slower time of the year, not as much going on in the world of Georgia sports. Here we are doing something that we don't normally do. So that's a very, very long-winded way of saying Let's do our best impression of all the middle-aged soccer moms out there who can't get enough of insert whatever reality TV show you want to, and let's dig into the drama of the reality TV show that is college athletics, because that's what it is, guys. I mean, it's we love it, but it's it's pure, unadulterated entertainment, and it is, it's, like, it's the truest form of reality TV, honestly. Think about what we've got going on here with Saban and Jimbo. How is that any different than what's going on on whatever housewife show there is out there on Bravo TV? It's along the same lines. In fact, I would say it's even more pure reality television because there's nothing scripted here. These guys are completely off script. And like I said earlier, I'm eating this up and I know a lot of you guys are eating it up too because that's what we've heard from you guys in our DMs and in our inbox the whole nine yards. And the, the question I've gotten most about all of this in those DMs, in those emails, even the guy at a bar here in Athens on Friday night asked me this question when he heard me, kind of just overheard me and my wife talking about it because my wife, who is so incredible, is loud. She, she has a very loud volume level in just her normal, natural conversations. But we were just talking about it and he overheard us and he chimed in. And the question that he asked me and I've gotten asked by quite a few of you out there is very simply, are you Team Saban 
or Team Jimbo? And in trying to answer that question, my first thought is this. I don't think either coach, Saban or Jimbo, really said anything that wasn't true. So it's hard for me to pick a side here because I think they both were speaking truths in their own way. And let's start with Saban. Now, call me naive if you want. I've been called worse things in my life. That's cool. But naive or not, I truly do think Nick Saban cares about the overall health of college football. I do. I think the guy actually cares about it. Now, does he want to ensure that his program is best positioned for success in the process of making sure college football is healthy long-term? Of course he does. I may be naive. I may be. But certainly not so naive as to think that Saban's rant or his general position on NIL right now in the portal while we're at it is entirely or even mostly altruistic. I'm not that naive. But if college athletics as a whole is not healthy, what that does is it injects uncertainty into the equation. And uncertainty can pose an existential threat to Saban's dominance over the sport. He knows that. That's what unsettles him. It's the uncertainty. Because if things are structured the way they've always been, Saban's going to dominate because Saban's always dominated. He's, he's mastered that system. But the uncertainty with all these new things, with NIL, with the transfer portal, that all of a sudden starts to challenge Nick Saban's dominance over this sport. So as Jimbo oh so eloquently stated about six different times, there is certainly some narcissism in Saban's interest in the health of college athletics. That, that's true. I, I definitely buy that. But regardless... I do think that is where he was coming from last week. I do think he was trying to speak up about what he perceived to be the dangers facing college football. I do believe that he actually wants college football to, to be healthy again, not just for altruism's sake, because if college football is healthy in his definition of healthy, then his program is going to be in really good shape and is going to be winning more and more national titles and will further cement his status as the GOAT, right? But... And picking sides here, if that's what I have to do, because that's what people have been asking me to do, I think one thing you have to look at here, I think it's really important to make a distinction between what Nick Saban actually said and what Jimbo Fisher wants you to believe he said and what AM fans believe Saban said. If you were listening closely to Saban's comments, and in fact, you didn't even have to be listening all that closely. You could have been distracted by something else and still kind of got what he was saying. Nick Saban never one time said that AM was cheating. He, yeah, he said they bought their entire recruiting class. He did say that. But as he came back and said when he was kind of clarifying his comments the next day after that just historical rant of Jimbo Fisher's, he wasn't saying anyone was running afoul of the rules. He was saying they're doing within the rules, but the rules are that they are allowed to buy their players. And that's what he has an issue with. It's not what they've done. It's he more so has an issue with the rules themselves. And I think anyone that has, I would even say a half-functioning brain, already believed that AM had bought that class in the first place. Anyone paying attention, I mean, you know that. You know that, guys. I mean, they signed eight five-stars in 2022. Eight freaking five-stars. Guys, they had signed eight total five-stars in the previous seven years combined. What changed? Huh? Let me think really hard about this, man. I just, I don't know. What, what, what was different this year? What changed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
NIL. That's what changed. That's exactly what changed. I mean, you're supposed to believe that an 8-4 and four season last year, they lost to Ole Miss, Arkansas, and Mississippi State to a bad LSU team at the end of the year. We're supposed to believe that recruits just love what they saw last year and just that led them to believe in the upward trajectory of the a program based on those results. I mean, get out of here with that. Like, I'm not, I'm, I might be dumb. I ain't that dumb. I mean, come on. That's, that's epic levels of dumb. So as far as I see it, Nick Saban just was not wrong. He flat out was not wrong in what he said about AM buying those players. He wasn't wrong about what he said about Jacksonville State and Travis Hunter. He didn't use them by name. That's who he was alluding to. I mean, AM and Jimbo have actually said as much themselves in the past. They haven't exactly hidden that. I mean, they've been talking about NIL money that their 2022 class has gotten. They've talked about that openly. They've 100% been talking out of both sides of their mouth depending on when it's convenient to talk out of which side of their mouth. On one hand, they want players to know, hey guys, look at us, we'll give you an IL money. So they have to kind of publicize that at least to a degree, right? They want to get the word out there when that's convenient for them. But when someone deigns to, to challenge them and say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't the route that we should be going down in college football, then they can talk on the other side of their mouth and, and they claim that they've been victimized, that, oh my God, how dare you talk about us in those terms? You know, everybody loves to play the victim and Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M, they have mastered that. At least last week they mastered that. There's no doubt about it. And honestly, here's another reason why I might lean towards being Team Saban here if I have to pick one side. On some level, it's just refreshing, man. It's just refreshing to hear someone with prominence within this sport that we all love actually speak up and verbalize what we all have known was true. One thing that infuriates me more than just about anything, especially like when you're talking about politics, is when you have politicians stand up there and we all know something is true and you sit there and you just tell us a bold-faced lie and obfuscate the issue. That's just insulting to me. Do you really think we're that dumb? And I've kind of felt that way with the leaders in college football. I kind of like burying their head in the sand. I'm like, hey, nothing's going on here. I don't see anything. Nothing's happening. When we all see exactly what's happening and you're just treating us like we are a bunch of morons. And so, yeah, on some level, it's refreshing to hear a guy like Nick Saban come out and just flat out say what we all have known was true, what we've all been talking about. And again, Saban's larger point about how the purpose behind NIL, the original purpose behind NIL, has been subverted by coaches like Jimbo Fisher looking to gain a competitive advantage on the field. That point, as far as I'm concerned, is extremely valid. I have zero issues with that. I thought it was well articulated. I thought it was well thought out. So yeah, from that perspective, I guess I would lean towards saying I'm, I'm Team Saban here. I, honestly, I'm not even mad. I'm not even mad that Saban called out AM and Jacksonville State. Again, I think on a pretty significant level, that's refreshing. AM absolutely bought that class 100%. Now, that doesn't mean they broke any rules, doesn't mean they violated any policies, because as Jimbo very, because you have to think about what Jimbo said. Jimbo sat there in his press conference and he didn't deny that he bought players. Think about how he worded it. He said, we did not break any state of Texas laws. He said that a couple times. He never said, we've never paid players. Or he never said, we don't have a collective that pays players. So somebody asked about, asked about a collective, he said, oh, that's, that's, that, that's what they do. I, I, I don't I know nothing about that. Of course you freaking know something about it. I mean, get out of here with that. So when Saban just flat out called a spade a spade and called it like it is, I don't have an issue with that whatsoever. 
that what he said, again, go back to what I said at the outset, was true. It's 100% true. My only issue with Saban and what he said, and this is why I can't be like fully on Team Saban here, is that it's just yet another Saban excuse. And maybe I am biased right now coming off the heels of a national championship that Nick Saban and every Alabama fan on earth has tried to downplay by claiming that if it wasn't for those injuries, for those receivers, and oh my God, then Georgia never would have won a national title. And it's like, okay, well, cool. But you know what? 33-18. So maybe that's just a little raw for me and that frustrates me. But it's not just that. I mean, go back to like when we started to have this offensive revolution with the RPOs and the linemen four yards down the field and tempo offenses and Saban making comments about how this is not what college football is supposed to be. It's not how it's supposed to be played because it challenged Saban's dominance, right? If things had stayed the way they were when Saban was, was establishing his dominance, he would have continued to be dominant. He didn't want to have to change. He wanted to keep college sports the way it was because it kept his program in the best position to continue to dominate. Now, I will say to his credit, he did evolve and adjust because he was forced to do that. And it's just the same thing will happen here with NIL. If things aren't changed, Saban will adjust and evolve. And he was alluding to that essentially when uh, he was making those comments last week. He was basically saying, hey, you know, I, I don't know if I can sustain doing what we're doing and not buying players into the future because if we don't buy players, then we're going to lose all these recruits and my dominance is going to be challenged. So just like he changed his offense all those years back, I imagine if things don't get reeled in here and reined in in some way, that he'll he'll change his his tune on NIL and start doing exactly what Jimbo Fisher's doing if he's not already doing, which is another thing. Like, let's not pretend that Nick Saban and the boosters, and, and maybe Saban didn't have direct knowledge of it, but we know that play, Players have been bought for years and years and years. And yes, that includes Alabama. Alabama has plenty of that in their in their background, in the history of their program. They've been on probation for that kind of stuff with means and all that kind of deal. So let's not like just bury our head in the sand act like Alabama is just this pure program, this clean, spotless program that would never deign to color outside the lines because that is straight BS as well. So I don't love the fact that, in my opinion, it's just another excuse for Nick Saban. And in Jimbo's defense, I will say that he also got some things right. Like I said at the outset, I think both guys were speaking truths. I think they were in their own ways. Jimbo's right. Saban is a raging narcissist and an egomaniac. I think that's undeniable. I don't know how you can argue otherwise. I mean, Saban is a guy that 100% has difficulty admitting that someone is just better than him. He is a narcissist. That's a quality of a narcissist having difficulty admitting that you aren't the best, that someone might have done something better than you. It eats at him. And that's a big part of why Saban wants this mythical level playing field that's never actually been level in college football's history. But he wants this mythical level playing field that he keeps talking about because in his mind, if it's a quote unquote level playing field in terms of NIL, no one can beat him. Just like it was a level playing field in terms of offenses had to operate, no one could beat him, right? And that's why he went on that rant at a coach's clinic a couple of weeks, a month or so after the national championship. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? The one where he just completely ripped apart those receivers who had to fill in for Mechie and Williams last year. Guys like Ajay Hall, that's why it's a big reason why Hall is no longer a part of the Alabama program. He was not an idiot. He's not some redneck hillbilly from West Virginia. Some people might view him that way. That's not what Saban is. Saban's an intelligent man. Just like Kirby Smart, people want to call him an idiot, call him goofy. Yeah, he's kind of goofy, but he's a smart dude. These guys are intelligent. They do not get to where they are in life without having a certain level of intelligence. Saban knew, 
especially in this current climate that we're in with everyone having social media and cell phones, that strong likelihood what he was saying at that coach's clinic was going to get out there. Someone's going to film that and was going to get out there. He was sending a message to his players, but in my opinion, more so to the fan base, to Alabama fans, the rest of college football. He wants you to know that when he got beat, it was because things weren't fair. Oh, poor innocent Nick. Oh man, poor guy. No mind the fact that he's the guy that had an NFL level support staff about 10 years before everyone else in college football did. And that's a big part of how he built his dynasty. Talking about how Jimbo, in some you know, he didn't say Jimbo, but he was talking about Jimbo, but he was saying some coaches are using NIL to gain an advantage on the field of play. That's exactly what Saban was doing with the bloated support staff all those years ago. Remember, we always used to complain about how our uh, administration wasn't fully invested in our football program the way that Alabama's was. They wouldn't give Mark Rick the resources that Saban was working with, and so he was kind of fighting his battle with one arm tied behind his back, and then Kirby comes in, and what did Kirby say? One of his demands taking the job was, you better open up the checkbook. Give him those same resources that Alabama has. I know what resources they have, and I want those resources. We gave him those resources, and oh, see what happens. Oh, yeah, give him a couple years, we win a national title. It's not that hard, guys. It's not that hard. And so Saban was trying to find the competitive advantage, yet it's okay when he finds competitive advantage, but not so much when someone else finds competitive advantage. That's just, it's very rich stuff, guys. It's very hypocritical stuff. I mean, when it comes down to it, college football has to be played on Nick Saban's terms. That that's his demand. College football has to be played on my terms, and that's the thing. I I, I do think he cares about the long term health of college football, but the long term health of college football has to be on Nick Saban's terms, and that's again why I I lean towards being Team Saban here, but I can't go that far to that side. I kind of cringe when I say Team Saban. In fact, as as I've laid out here, I don't exactly love some of the. Th- things that he was saying and where he was coming from and really the motive really it's more so it's not what he said it's the motivations behind it that kind of bother me now one more reason why I would lean Saban is how just in my and this is me this is me some of you probably have a totally different view on this but I felt that Jimbo just looked really pathetic at his press conference I know a lot of people you know stood up and applauded that Aiden fans were eating that stuff up like yeah man fight for your players fight for your guys man stand up for that dictator okay, that's one way of looking at it. But I also, I just kind of felt sad for him that he felt like he needed to go and do that. I think there's something infinitely comical about a raging egomaniac calling a press conference so everyone can look at him as he tells them why it's BS that anyone dare challenge the validity of his number one recruiting class. I think there's something very funny about that. I mean, Jimbo went out there claiming he was taking up for his players and that's what this was about, his players and the university. How dare you do this to my players? How dare you talk about their families like this? How dare you say this about our university? Give me a break, man. Give me a freaking break. That whole entire rant, that entire press conference was 100% about him. It was about Jimbo Fisher. Just like Nick Saban, his comments had to at least present the pretext that you know his concerns about the health of college football is about the best thing for his players and teaching them what it's like to earn something, all those kind of things. Just like that, Jimbo's just smart enough to know that he at least has to present that pretext, that he's taken up for the poor, innocent athletes and their aggrieved families. You know, just like Saban needs everyone to know that he's the best and if he loses, there's always an excuse that if everyone would just do things the right way, aka his way, if everyone would just operate in that same way, 
well, I'm clearly the best. Just like that, Jimbo needs everyone to know that he's the new sheriff in town, that his way is the right way. You know, it's funny how, to me at least, it's funny how they both laid claim in their respective rants to doing things the right way. I, I found that to be kind of funny as well. And to take this a step further, I don't know how many of you are subscribed to The Athletic or aware of this article, but late last week after this whole thing went down, The, the Athletic published a really good article that's kind of outlining and detailing the historical relationship between Jimbo and Saban. I think the general consensus was like they were like it was a mentor-mentee relationship, a teacher-student relationship, and that's not exactly how it was portrayed and presented, at least in that article on The Athletic. The way that they presented it is that Jimbo Fisher chafed under Saban's dictatorial leadership for years, for years and years and years. And Jimbo always felt like deep down he knew better, his ideas were better, and he resented Saban's just very dismissive and and honestly outright disdainful attitude towards a lot of Jimbo's ideas and his talents and what he brought to the table. So there's that side of it, but he did also on some level kind of view him as a mentor of sorts and did seek his approval because Saban was viewed as one of the great coaches in college football, wants that approval. And then over the past 20 years, you know, now this is me just speculating here. This is not in the article. So you take all of that that was in that article, and then you think about the past 20 years or so, you know that Jimbo Fisher had to be seething while Saban has been elevated to GOAT status. Because back when he was working for Saban at LSU, Saban was not viewed as the greatest of all time. He had not attained that yet. He hadn't even gotten to Alabama yet. He hadn't even gone through the whole NFL thing with Miami yet. He wasn't there yet. He was seen as a really, really good coach, an elite coach, but no one was saying GOAT back in 2003. They weren't saying that about Saban at that time. Just a, a really, really, really good coach. So I imagine as Saban was being elevated to that GOAT status, that Jimbo was just sitting there stewing on it and just thinking to himself, man, if I had the resources to work with that Saban did and had the advantages, think about how he put in his press, he said, all the advantages as he put in his press conference, if I had those, that I'd be viewed as that guy. I'd be viewed as the greatest of all time. So blend all of that together, and then I think that's how you get to the explosive press conference that we got last week. And then here's another reason why I can't be Team Jimbo here. He just completely misconstrued Saban's comments. I think deliberately. In fact, it had to be deliberately. Again, I don't think Jimbo Fisher is a dumb person. Now, Saban probably shouldn't have, I guess, publicly called out AM and Jacksonville State. Sure, I guess you can say that again. I don't have a problem with it because I don't think he was saying anything that wasn't true. And I think if you're doing things a certain way that it, you have to be okay with people saying it. Like, don't be so fragile. I mean, if you want to come out there and act all big and tough at your press conference, well, that big and tough, put your big boy pants on when somebody says something critical about you. Just let it roll off your back. But I really was rubbed the wrong way with how he just completely misconstrued Saban's comments and, and what I think was a very thinly veiled attempt to vilify Saban, to make him the villain and to portray A&M and Jimbo Fisher and his players as the aggrieved victims, as the aggrieved party in, in this whole controversy. Just get that out of my face, man. Get that out of my face. So again, I don't think either guy comes out of this looking all that great, but if I had to lean one way or the other for the reason I laid out there, I think I would lean at least slightly towards being on Team Saban. And yes, I am cringing as I say that. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, I do want to stick with this Sabin Jimbo feud for at least a couple more minutes here. Because I want to focus on not what they disagreed on, but I want to focus on the one thing that they did both agree on wholeheartedly in their respective press conferences. Those of you who listened to both press conferences, in fact, Saban's wasn't even really a press conference. It was uh, a get-together to like promote the world games as, that are being played in Alabama this summer. Whatever. If you listen to both of their comments, you know that Saban, first off, the entire purpose of his rant was centered around the need to do something about NIL. And he specifically brought up the need for the federal government to get involved and provide the NCAA antitrust exempt status. Jimbo Fisher said the same thing at least twice, if I remember correctly, maybe more than that, but he at least mentioned it two different times. They both agreed there needs to be uniformity and the NIL laws, the transfer portal laws, whatever rules there are that are in place, there needs to be uniformity. And they both were in agreement that the only way we could get that is if the federal government got involved and gave the NCAA that antitrust exempt status. That was really what Saban was trying to do, in my opinion. That's when I go back to like talking about how I think Saban was trying to look out for the, at least on some level, the, the long-term health of college football. I think he was trying to sound the alarm publicly about these issues because let's let's get real we know these conversations have been going on behind closed doors with the power brokers in college football but not enough action had been taken to that point to Nick Saban's liking and that again risked his continued dominance over the sport so that's really what he was trying to do me personally I, I think that is a potential solution I think if Congress did get involved and give the NCAA that antitrust exemption status, that could be a potential solution to these NIL issues and some of these other issues facing college football. However, I think that's a pipe dream. I think that to expect the NCAA to get help from Congress at this point, to get some sort of congressional intervention and congressional legislation passed on a federal level is highly unlikely at this point. And I say that because this is not the first time that a power broker in college football 
has reached out to Congress or suggested to Congress or even flat out requested Congress do something to help them. The NCAA has been asking for congressional help for years. Coaches, commissioners, conference commissioners, NCAA commissioners have been seeking congressional help for years. They saw what was coming down the road with all of those lawsuits, the the Austin lawsuit, all those different things. They've seen that for years. But there's been nothing but silence from Congress. They like to get up there and bloviate and, and grandstand and bloviate about how evil the NCAA is and how they are victimizing these poor, innocent college athletes. They love to get on those soapboxes because everyone kind of agreed on that, at least for the most part, and that can win them some goodwill back home with voters. They were just doing what politicians do, but also just like politicians, they fail to take any sort of tangible or meaningful action that would actually benefit their constituents. So if they haven't done it yet to this point, why would we expect them to do it now? I think it's just a pipe dream. And honestly, I'm going to take this a step further. I don't want any part of that. I really don't. I do think it's something that could provide potential solutions, but it's not the kind of solution that I think would be in the best interest of college football long-term. That's really what we're all concerned about. And that's what I'm concerned about. Saban, I think to a degree, also there's some selfishness in there, but I, I am genuinely concerned about it because here's the thing, guys. If you do go that route and you're relying on Congress to pass antitrust exemption legislation to protect the NCAA and give them the, the power to actually enforce their, their rules, their policies, their laws, bylaws, the whole nine yards, what you are doing is you are inviting the federal government into college athletics. And they're going to have people overseeing that. I don't know about you guys. I do not want any part of that. I do not want the federal government involved in college athletics in any way, shape, or form. I don't trust them to actually have the best interest of college sports at heart. I think that's more dangerous potentially than just continuing with the status quo where we are right now. I do. I think that's potentially more dangerous because you get to all those people that are overseeing that. You get the, the the bureaucracy involved and it's just a freaking mess. I really don't want to see what the world looks like when college football is run or at least in some way overseen by the federal government. I don't think you guys want that either. Maybe some, I'm sure some of you disagree. I personally don't want that. But here's what I do agree on. I do agree that we have to rein things in some way, somehow, and put some sort of guardrails in place so that the NIL is not used so brazenly as a recruiting inducement the way that Texas A&M clearly used it this past season. And Texas A&M is certainly not the only program to do it. They're just the most obvious example because they put together the greatest recruiting class in the history of recruiting classes, at least on paper, in terms of the, the guys that they signed. And they did that kind of out of nowhere. What's the only, as I said earlier, what's the only difference? Oh yeah, NIL. So they're just the poster child for it right now. But again, I do think that we have to rein this in somehow. I really believe that's important for the long-term health of college football. So the question becomes, how do you do that? How do you put those guardrails in place without the NCAA getting the antitrust exemption status from the government? Because again, I don't want any part of that. How do you put those guardrails in place and give the NCAA the power or somebody the power to enforce those, those rules without the NCAA being accused of putting artificial caps on player earnings and running afoul of those antitrust statutes? How do you do that? I personally don't think the NCAA can do it because the NCAA, for all practical purposes, does have a monopoly over college sports. That's kind of, there's a lot of issues here at play, but that's kind of the root of a lot of these issues. 
it's just simply anti-competitive, which is what antitrust laws are designed to do to stop that those anti-competitive practices. So how do you get around the monopoly thing? That's what you have to figure out. All right, I, I'm not smart to figure out the entire solution here, but I've been putting a lot of thought into this, and I think what you have to get around is the monopoly thing. Because if, if the antitrust stuff is what scares the insulated to death, because that is what scares the insulated to death. I forget the name of the case, but the Supreme Court, which you know in our uh, very polarized political climate, which we've always had a polarized political climate in the United States, but maybe uh, maybe it's it's more pronounced than it ever has been in U.S. history. It's extraordinarily rare to get all those justices on the Supreme Court to all agree on anything. But one thing they did all agree on not that long ago was the NCAA and their practices when it comes to student athletes and restricting their ability to to earn profits from this college football enterprise. It's been a while since I read that decision. Curtis will probably know more than me since he is the resident Juris Doctor. In fact, I'm positive he'd know more than me on this, but I did read most of that decision when it came out, whenever that was, for exactly when it was. And so I don't, you know, forgive me if I don't quote it completely accurately here, but I think it was Brett Kavanaugh who wrote the majority decision and essentially what he basically laid out and said was that the NCAA has been getting away with things that no other company in any other industry would ever be able to get away with when it comes to compensating the people who actually make the industry go. It's workers, right? So I think that ruling, along with all the other lawsuits that the NCAA has faced over the past decade plus now, have just absolutely scared them to death, and they don't want to even try to risk provoking Congress or the Supreme Court in any way, shape, or form. So that's why they kind of just thrown their hands up, and there has been absolutely zero enforcement of any of these NIL laws until, I guess, what, the past week or two? There's been some talk about the NCAA trying to go back and like retroactively apply some of these rules to these programs, saying if you if we find evidence that you've used NIL as a recruiting inducement, then you're going to be subject to punishment. And it's like, what punishment? What exactly are you going to do? And the thing is, they can't really do anything. So yes, again, that's the problem, the monopoly thing. How do you get around that? what would make this competitive? Because that's what it is. Like, if something is not monopolistic, what does that mean? It means it's competitive. What out there in the world of college sports is competitive? I think the answer is the conferences, right? Like, you guys follow me here? I think the conferences, I'm not the first person to say this, but I'll add my my two cents to it. I'll add my name to this list of people who, who are thinking along these lines. I think the conferences need to break away from the NCAA. And when you do that, if they did that, what you have now the ability to do is you allow the individual conferences themselves the power to set and enforce those NIL guardrails. The NCAA would not be involved anymore. The individual conferences would set their own rules when it comes to NIL rules, policies, guardrails, whatever you want to call it. Now, those conferences might still dominate college athletics, but if they are all in competition with one another, which they would be technically, right? I think at least. I mean, again, I don't know all the, the legal ramifications of this. Curse would probably be. I, I wish he was actually on this episode so we could talk about this. And I wanted him to be because I want to get his thoughts on this. Again, as our resident jurist doctorate. But he had some come up and had to push his recording day back to later in the week. He'll be back on for our mailbag episode later on this week. But I wanted him on here for this episode to ask him these questions. So I'm going to play amateur hour here. Again, I'm not an expert in this, but just kind of throwing some things out there, putting some things together. 
as far as I would think, I think the conferences would be kind of viewed as in competition with one another. None of them would have a monopoly over the sport, over the industry. And if that's the case, therefore, they cannot be subject to antitrust laws. I think that's the route to go. Again, I'm not the expert here. There are people a lot smarter than me that have to get in rooms and figure this all out. But that makes sense to me. I'm, I'm a history guy. I, I would equate this you know, from my history perspective. I would relate this to like the Standard Oil Company. Back in the day, you know, John D. Rockefeller, Standard Oil Company, dominated the oil industry. But because of antitrust statutes that were passed during that era, was eventually broken into seven different companies. Now, those seven companies still dominated the oil industry, but they were at least ostensibly in competition with each other. Therefore, they were allowed to remain in operation. So I think the same thing can happen here with the conferences. Ostensibly, they would be in competition with one another, right? So I think that might be the solution to all this to get around the monopolistic practices and the antitrust statutes. I think that could be a potential way to get around it. So I don't know, just keep that in your back pocket. I don't know if, I don't think we're like especially close to getting towards that. I do think in some ways, Greg Sankey had that in mind. I think I think a lot of Greg Sankey, I think he's a very smart guy. I think he's a great commissioner. Might be the most powerful person in all of college athletics right now. I think when he added Texas A&M in Oklahoma to get the SEC to 16, I don't think he had intentions of stopping there. I think, and I, I don't think you know when we added them last year that he wanted he, he had four other teams or whatever, however many other teams ready to go right then. But I do think down the road, why are you adding Texas? Why are you adding Oklahoma? Sure, it brings revenue and, and value in terms of TV contracts and all that. I mean, sure. Like, yeah. Does it help you if we expand the playoffs? And that was part of the calculus too. You expand the playoffs, you increase your conferences, uh, strength of schedule, you have better competition there. You maybe go to a nine game conference schedule and put yourself in a better position to get more teams in the college football playoff. If it goes to 12 teams. And obviously that got shot down, at least in the short term. But I think there's also some calculus there where he's thinking, all right, at some point, the conferences, these major Power Five conferences are going to break away from the NCAA. And when that happens, I want the SEC to be best positioned to lead college ball into the future. And the other conferences will do their own thing too, but we'll all kind of work together on some level because we have to play each other and we'll have this college ball playoff that we're all partners in. But we're still kind of separate. We're still competing with one another. And I think he wanted the SEC to be in the best position possible for that. I think adding Oklahoma and Texas was, was the first salvo in that. And, um, and I'm, I'm interested to see if there's going to be any more expansion down the road. And I know like with the grant of rights, the ACC, that makes it tough. But in the Big 12 looks stable enough for now. But how long does that last? I don't know. I think there's some more dominoes that might potentially fall. But I do think this is something, the breaking away from the NCAA, that, that – most of the major conferences have at least thought of and are potentially even still now very seriously considering. I don't know if it's imminent and when it's going to happen, if it's going to happen, but I just think that's something to watch here over the next couple years. As all this NIL, transfer portal, all these issues facing college ball as they play out over the next couple of years. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right. So that was our foray into the bigger world of college football. Again, I know that's not something we normally do a lot on here, but I did get a lot of questions actually about that. And I know some people were anxious to get our thoughts on that and maybe we'll give Curtis a chance to share his thoughts a little bit on the show later on this week. But for now, let's bring it back to our wheelhouse and get to some Georgia-specific content. But for the second time today, yes, this is Georgia-specific stuff, but we're going to do something that we don't usually do. Obviously, we talk Georgia sports in this podcast, but we don't talk much Georgia baseball. But that is what I want to do for the rest of the show today. If you follow Georgia baseball at all, which I know a lot of you do, it has been a very rough month. It has been tough this past month. Now, on the bright side, we are going to go to the NCAA tournament, beating Missouri in the series finale on Saturday, essentially locked that up. Now, we end up 15 and 15 in conference. 16 is the magic number. At 16 wins in conference in the SEC, historically, not one single team in the SEC in the history of the conference that's gotten a 16 conference wins in college baseball has been left out of the insulated tournament. So that's what I was shooting for. But getting to 15, I think the number is above 80% of the teams in the SEC in, in history that have gotten to 15 wins in conference have made the insulated tournament. Our RPI is very good. It's top 15 still. After the win against Missouri, might have jumped back in the top 10. It's been top 10 most of the year, top five for a lot of the year. Arching the schedule is still top 10. So the metrics are going to put us in the, in the NCAA tournament. That's going to happen. So yay, cool. That's the bright side. Now, the downside is that we have limped to the finish line, and that's being extraordinarily gracious to this team. We have flat out been bad the past month or so. We have lost four series in a row. And we have now lost five of our last six series within the SEC. On top of that, with the possibility of hosting a regional at stake last weekend, we went into the weekend, guys, with the possibility, if we finish strong in that last regular season series of the season, to still host a regional, which would have been huge for us. A team that doesn't have much pitching depth like we, like, like we are in that situation right now, playing a four seed to open up a regional would have been big for us. But we just lost two out of three at home to the worst team in the league in Missouri who didn't even qualify for the SEC tournament. 12 of the 14 teams qualify. Missouri was one of the two that did not. And with all of that on the line, we lost two out of three to that team at home. Not good. Not acceptable. Honestly, just not acceptable. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, guys. About a month or so ago. We were riding pretty high, man. At that time, about five, six weeks ago, hosting a regional was assured. No one was talking about, is George going to host a regional? That that was a sure thing. That was going to happen. It was more so a matter of whether we would secure a top eight seed and be able to host a regional and a super regional if we were able to get out of that regional. That's what the conversation was about about five or six weeks ago. And then the bottom fell out. Now, I, I will say, I warned you guys, we don't talk much baseball on this show, but I think we had a question on a mailbag episode, you know, about five or six weeks ago. And uh, people were asking me, somebody, I forget who it was, somebody asked me about my opinion on our postseason chances. And I said, right now, things look really good. I think we're going to host a regional. And at that time, I thought we were going to host a regional. But I also warned you about the schedule and the fact that it was very, very backloaded. 
We had the fact is, guys, we had a very, very weak open to the conference schedule. Playing teams like Mississippi State, who was also one of the worst teams in the league this year after winning the national title last year. South Carolina, who wasn't very good. Kentucky, who wasn't a great team. Actually lost two out of three to Kentucky. Now we have some injuries in, in that series, but we lost two out of three to them up in Lexington. Um, who else did we put? Now we swept Florida. Florida was a good, solid team, but they're about middle of the pack at the end of the day in the SEC. We swept them, which was great. But you looked ahead at the schedule and you're like, oh, okay, wow, we were murderer's row down the stretch. Uh, LSU on the road in Baton Rouge, tough place to play. Vanderbilt at home. Vanderbilt hasn't been as good as they have been in years past, but still a very good college baseball program. At number one, Tennessee. That was always going to be an up and battle. We did get one out of three there, so we got a win, which is something. And then you look at Missouri, and you're like, okay, well, at least we can finish on Missouri. Well, that didn't happen, man. That flat out did not happen. But just a very backloaded schedule. And we were when we were winning, I honestly didn't know how we were winning because our pitching staff has been decimated with injuries. Our bullpen is not good. We'll get to that later on. Offense is, is much better than it has been in years past, but... We still didn't have like that one dominant guy that's got you know 15, 20 homers. I mean, the Tate Bros have been really, really good for us. Cole got hurt about halfway through the conference schedule, just came back in the past couple of weekends, and he's come back, and he's been on a tear since he's come back. Had a great series uh, against Tennessee. Had a, Also had a good series against uh, Missouri as well. So the, so the offense has been better this year, but some of the guys that were doing damage early on really started to fall in hard times. The competition really picked up in SEC play. Guys like Corey Collins, who came this season, is going to be one of our better hitters. He was tearing things up, hit over 300, had about eight home runs through the non-conference slate. And he, you thought he was set to be a breakout star in the SEC, and then he falls flat on his face. He did hit a home run last week, but it was his first home run in like 16 games, something like that. His average has fallen under 270. And he's moved down the lineup. I mean, he was at one point out of the lineup as a DH because we were just trying to give him a break and let him kind of get his head straight. So he's really kind of fallen off the face of the earth. Ben Anderson was sitting well over 300 at the leadoff spot for most of the year. He's still been good and soft for his leadoff spot, but his average is in the 280s now. And that happens to a degree. Once the competition picks up, you're always going to like level out a little bit. And you're going to come back to to the norm. I mean, that, that, that does happen. But that ha- certainly hasn't helped us in conference play. And then the injuries... And the starting pitching staff, as I mentioned, have really caught up to us. Now with Nolan Smith going out for what looks like the rest of the year, I think it's a lat. Uh, he came out of his start in the second inning against Missouri on Thursday night, which is really what cost of that game. As soon as he came out, I said, oh my God, we have no chance to win this game because our bullpen is terrible. And if we have to rely on our bullpen for seven plus innings, there's no way we're going to win this game, even if it is against the worst team in the league. Because we've played really bad non-con teams in the midweek and those guys have gotten lit up. So what's, what's an SEC team going to do to them? And sure enough, it, it wasn't pretty. Ten, ten runs later, not pretty. So three stars off the season. That puts more strain on already very bad bullpen as it is. So we had to take some of our better guys out of the bullpen, a guy like, like Nolan Chris, and put him in the starting lineup and out of starting rotation. And it just has been a mess. I mean, guys, it really is. The biggest issue for this team has been the worst bullpen I've ever seen. And I'm really, really not trying to be hyperbolic. I am not trying to exaggerate when I say that. I truly believe it. And maybe this is recency bias. I'm a prisoner of the moment. But this has been the worst bullpen I've ever seen in my entire life. It is difficult to watch. It is just bad, man. We cannot throw strikes. We cannot get people out. Several of the guys who were decent for us last year, like Will Pearson, have regressed this year. It's just been Bad, man. Now, the only saving grace we've had has been Jack Gowan. I know you might say, well, what about Jaden Woods? No. 
Jaden Woods has not been good. He started out fine. As, we, as the conference schedule has picked up and things have gotten tougher, we played better competition. Jaden Woods has been flat out bad. He's given up, I mean, his ERA is about five now. He's been giving up a ton of home runs because he's got two pitches. He's got a great fastball. He's got good stuff on it. He's got good movements, a live fastball, but he's got nothing else to go with it. And pitch and hit, good hitters at this level can time that up and just crush you. And that's what's happened. I mean, the LSU game, we were up on LSU in the ninth inning, the bottom of the ninth inning on Sunday for a chance to win that series, take two out of three on the road, which would have been huge. And if we would have won that game, we might have actually been hosting a regional. I mean, really, probably would have. But Woods comes in and blows the game. I mean, that happens. You know, guys, it happens. Relief pitchers, it happens. But that's been the norm for him the past, I mean, not even a couple of weeks, month plus now at this point. So he's not been good. He can't, he's not throwing strikes. He's giving up jacks. It's just not good. Not He's hitting batters. Just, is, it has not been good. And Gowan has been really, really good for us. He had a really rough outing this past weekend, but by and large, Gowan's been the only saving grace that we've had in the bullpen. I mean, and he's had a lot of pressure thrown on him. He's been pitching, not like as our ostensibly our closer, he hasn't been pitching in one inning. He's been like a, a three-inning type closer. That's what he's had to be, and, and he's done a good job. But even Gowan, I mean, he's been really good for us. He doesn't have overwhelming stuff. So the bullpen is just, it's not good, man. Rokos has been pretty solid. He's come on a little bit for us of late, but I just have no faith in the bullpen. When those guys come in, unless we have like a nine-run lead, I'm like, oh my God, we're probably going to lose this game. So that's been tough, man. And that's why I, I know you probably are getting the impression that I don't have a lot of faith in this team. And you're right. I want to believe I follow base. I follow all Georgia sports closely, but I follow, obviously I follow Georgia, Georgia football first and foremost. That's my true love in life, true passion. That's number one. Um, I love Georgia tennis. I love Georgia basketball and I, and I love Georgia baseball. And I, I, and I pay attention to other sports. I pay attention to softball. I was watching that this weekend. I, I try to pay attention to volleyball and that, all that kind of stuff. I can't really watch that as much. Um, but I pay attention to all of it, but I'm invested in, in Georgia baseball. In fact, this year, I think I've been more into Georgia baseball this year than maybe I ever had. And I've always been into it. I've always been invested, but this year more so. And so I've watched every game and I've been with these guys and I want them to be good. I really, really do. And I don't like sitting here saying, I don't have faith in this team, but as someone who is invested in someone who does watch every single game, I don't have a lot of faith in this team. I'm just going to be real. I just don't. Now, we enter SEC tournament as a six seed. We open play 9.30 a.m. bright and early Tuesday against Alabama. So there, I mean, this is played in Hoover, so Alabama's the home team, but it's bright and early in the morning, so I don't know how many people are actually going to be there if that even really matters. It looks like it's probably going to be Luke Wagner to start that game, which I guess is, I mean, that's the best option we got right now. I mean, Cannon just pitched on Friday. He's not going to go. Uh, Sullivan just pitched on Saturday. He's not going to go. There's not enough time for them to rest. Nolan Crisp is out. He's the guy that was our he was our game one starter the past month plus because of injuries, and he's done a really good job for us. So Wagner is really the only other answer. I mean, I guess you could say Garrett Brown, but he has been a train wreck on the mound all year. I think he's lost complete confidence. Coleman Willis, who's a really highly touted guy coming out of high school, we thought might go to the, the Major League Baseball draft when we were really excited when we got him. And I'm still really excited about him, but he's a young guy and he has had a rough freshman year. I think he's another guy who's lost a lot of confidence. So I think the, the obvious answer has to be Luke Wagner. Um, I think he was better last year. He's, he's walking a lot of guys, but I mean, of the options that we have, he's probably the best option to try it out there. And if we can get three or four out of him, then I consider that probably a win. We'll see. He just needs to go out there and throw strikes. If he can throw strikes, Wagner is actually a pretty good pitcher. He's just been erratic this year, like pretty much everyone in that bullpen has. 
And I'm sure a lot of you want me to come on here and fill you full of goodwill and good vibes, positive vibes on the chance this team can make a run in the SEC tournament. Hey, who knows? Maybe we can get back into the hosting regional conversation if we can just make a run in the SEC tournament. And I wish I could do that for you guys. Those of you who want that, who are looking for that, I really, really do wish I could give you that. I'm trying to be honest here. I'm trying to be objective. I just don't think we have any chance to make any noise in this tournament. The SEC tournament, with the number of games you have to play to win this thing or to make any kind of run in it, it's all about pitching depth. And as I have laid out for you, I would venture to say, I feel very confident saying this, that we are in the worst shape in the entire conference when it comes to pitching depth. Again, that is not me trying to exaggerate and to use hyperbole. That's me trying to be honest with you. Could we beat Alabama? Yeah, sure. We beat them early in the year in Tuscaloosa. We took two out of three from them. They're not very good. They're the 11 seed for a reason. Could we beat them? Yeah, sure. But again, I don't have a ton of confidence in that because I don't trust our bullpen. It's going to be essentially a bullpen game. That's what it's going to be. And I just don't have a lot of confidence in that. Maybe our bats come out strong and we just, you know, start smacking the ball around. And yeah, if that happens, it could happen. If that happens, then we could beat Alabama. Sure. Absolutely. We've done that before. We can do it again. Then if we beat Alabama on Wednesday, we play Arkansas, who for most of the year is inside the top 10 in the college baseball rankings. They uh, they slid a little bit late in the year. I think they ended up with, what, the three seed, I want to say. They're still a really good baseball team. They have more talent than we do. They are better than we do. Could we beat them? Yeah, baseball. Anybody can beat anybody literally in one given day, like in a, in a single one-off setting. Sure, but probably not. Probably not going to beat Arkansas. So I don't know, man. Like if we get by Bama, that's certainly possible. I mean, I'll give us, let's say I'll give us a 50-50 shot to get by Bama. If we do that, then yeah, we can get that win. Maybe, maybe we can luck up. And even if we don't beat Arkansas, because the first round single elimination, then you go to double elimination after that. Maybe we, even if we lose Arkansas, we can, in the loser's bracket, find a way to win that game. Maybe get one or two wins in this thing. And then start talking about throwing John Cannon. But don't get your hopes up, guys. I'm not getting my hopes up. And I'm not trying to do that to you guys here. I just don't think the SEC tournament is the setting for our team with the issues that we have, particularly when it comes to pitching depth, to make a run and try to get back into the hosting conversation. That was something that we could have done last weekend, playing the worst team in the league at home and then dropping the ball. That we could have gotten done on the road in Baton Rouge and then dropped the ball in that bottom of the ninth inning on getaway day. It's just tough stuff. So right now we are where we are. I think right now we are a 2C. That's probably locked up at this point, even if we lose to Alabama in the first game of the SEC tournament. I think it's probably locked up. So really what happens in the SEC tournament doesn't really matter all that much unless we do make that deep run, which as I've said, I don't think is very realistic. As for postseason projections beyond the SEC tournament, D1 Baseball earlier today, their most recent projections for the NCAA tournament had us as a 2 seed, which is kind of what I figured we would be. And they had us projected as the two seed in the Statesboro Regional. So yes, you you heard that right. Georgia Southern in that scenario would be hosting the regional while we would be playing at Georgia Southern. Now they would, I think they had them pegged as the, or projected as the 16 seed, which means they were the last team to earn the, the regional hosting bid. But yeah, that's probably where we are right now. Now we did, if it does end up being the Statesboro Regional, we did beat Southern two out of three this year. We lost them uh, at SRP Park. That was in North Augusta, South Carolina, but we beat them in Statesboro and in Athens back in March. So we've had some success against them this year. The other, the other thing, though, is they also had, and we'll see if this works out like this. They usually do try to keep teams regionalized, so it might work out this way. 
They had Georgia, Georgia Southern, and Georgia Tech all in the same region. Now, we've had some success against Georgia Southern. We beat them two out of three this year, but Tech did take two out of three from us, so there's that. So that'd be really interesting if it ended up playing out like that. Again, that's just a projection. I do not know, but that's where they are projecting things right now. Obviously, we'll keep you guys up to date with that as things become more clear, as we see what happens in the SEC tournament, what Tech does, what Southern does, the whole nine yards. But that's where we are right now, and uh, let's just put our hands together and hope to God that these guys can find a way to make a miracle run and maybe find themselves back in position to host a regional. Again, don't get your hopes up there, but hey, we're fans. We can hope, right? But all right, guys, that is it for me. That's it for me today here on the show. I appreciate you sticking things out with me as we talked about some things that we don't normally talk about on this show. We're not a big storyline type show, but when a storyline like the Jimbo Saban feud dominates college sports and really all American sports the way it did last week, we'll make an exception. As of right now, Curtis is slated to be back with me unless something else comes up this week. He is slated to be back on with me later this week to record our latest mailbag edition of the podcast. So if you've got questions, keep them coming. We've got some good ones lined up, but we got plenty of room for more, if not this week, moving on through the rest of the summer. And I do want to also throw this out there, guys. We are bringing back the scheme theme. The month of June is going to be scheme theme month on this podcast once again. We did this last year and we got a lot of really good feedback on it. You guys really seem to enjoy it. And we want to bring it back yet again because you guys know me. I love talking X's and O's at the root of this. I just love college football. I love football. And there's very little I like more on this earth than talking football, like hardcore X and O football Last year, in fact, things went so well and you guys gave us such good feedback on it that we extended it beyond a month and it was pretty much like a scheme-themed summer. We, I, we definitely did it through May and June and maybe even a little bit into July. This month, we're probably going to keep it to one month, but we're going to have at least one episode a week every single week through the month of June. And again, depending on the feedback from you guys and, and what you guys say to us, we might keep it going a little bit longer into July, but definitely through June, we are going to be bringing some hardcore scheme talk to you guys. And look, some of it's going to be Georgia specific. Some will be more like broad based, just football stuff. I have a lot of things lined up, some ideas that I want to bring onto the show and to incorporate into the scheme thing. But if there's things that you guys want to know from a scheme standpoint that you're curious about, let us know. Now is the time. Hit us up on Twitter at Glory underscore UGA. You can email us at GloryUGAPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram. Just look up GloryUGAPodcast. Whatever works for you, find us. Let us know. And we will try to work all those things that you guys want us to cover into the scheme theme month as well. I'm excited about it. I hope you guys are excited about that. But that will be coming your way in the next week or so. So again, thank you guys for listening. Always appreciate it. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dog.